Welcome back to Not Another True Crime Podcast. I'm Sarah Levine. And I'm Danny Murphy. You know us as your partners in crime, wine, and time. And we have like a double hit, like header episode this week. We sure do. I mean, we, we're going to cover a case just like we always do. And then at the very end, we have a very special interview. So stick around. So this case we kind of pulled from a new show on Oxygen. Great show called Killer Relationship with Faith Jenkins. And then after we go through the case, we are going to talk to Faith herself. Yes, I know she was super insightful and very interesting to chat to about this case, the series in general, and also like some good, she also gave us some good dating tips, which I was not right? expecting, but happy to have. Yeah, I know. Definitely on, on how not to ignore the red flags. Yes, 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 yes. Love it. Well, I feel like we should just jump right in. Let's do it. Yes, yeah, so today we're going to go over the murder of, that sounds like I'm teaching a class, we're, we're not. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the murder of Joy Risker. Like we said, this there is a really good episode on a uh, killer relationship about it, and we're going to try to do some justice here, but we're no Faith Jenkins, people. We're just we, doing the best we can. No, she's a prosecutor. Uh, she was a judge on TV. She knows what she's doing a little bit more right. than us. All right. <laughs> So a little bit about Joy. She was born July 15th, 1978. Her biological dad left when she was a teenager, so she was raised by her mom, Gwen, and they were very close. Joy's friends described her as bubbly, smart, and open-minded, and and she was kind of like a free spirit. She would go to raves, which her mom didn't like, and that kind of created some tension. And her mom encouraged her to join the church instead of going to raves. Yes, because the mom loves the church. She was like, this is a safe space for my daughter. This is what I want you to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And Joy did. So she listened to her mom. And once she was enrolled into the church, Joy met Sean Goff, who was a youth pastor there. It was said that he had just, he was very, very good at what he did as a pastor. People said he had the power of a Pentecostal preacher, but the intelligence of someone who studied the divinity. So he just had, people were very into his sermons. Gwen, who was Joy's mom, sought out this youth pastor Sean's advice on how to get Joy more involved in the church and away from the raves because she just did not like her daughter spending any time doing any of that. So what Joy ended up doing, she really listened to her mom. She joined the youth group. And according to one of the church members, she joined to get closer to Sean. That's just what people were feeling about this. Who really knows? But yeah, actually, I, th- I think that was either a member or it might have just been like a random mental health professional that they got on the show. There was this mm-hmm. one woman who had like the most insane New York accent. And she was like, she, yes, she the joined one, yes. the church to be closer to Sean. And then she ordered a coffee and it was her last. <laughs> like, I'm just like, <laughs> no, she, uh, she really recorded that on her smoke break, which shout out. <laughs> Yeah, so there was the idea that she wanted an emotional closeness to Sean, and it was uh, reciprocated. It was vice versa, because Sean, charismatic and handsome, also developed a liking to her, so much so that Because she was like 19. 19, and she was the youth pastor, so in charge of the church. Or 18, maybe, even at this point. So he's sketchy as fuck. So um, to get Joy closer to him and also just to give her, you know, whatever. Uh, she became Sean's assistant and also at this point pretty much stopped her life from before. She wasn't going to raves. Her friends that were interviewed even said we would see her multiple times a week. And then it was just once a week maybe. And then it was just kind of radio silent. So like she really sort of fully 
transitioned into just being in the in the church. Uh, church members went on to say that they were quote unquote inseparable and Joy viewed Sean as a father figure. Um, and to add to that, when Joy turned 18, she came to Sean because she wanted a way to get out of her mom's house and become a little more independent. The independence that he chose for her or they met in the middle with though is a very interesting form of independence because Sean offered her yeah. a room in his house with his wife, Sheila in exchange for helping Sheila with the house and babysitting their son. So gives me like I, Jacob Nolan vibes. Yeah. It very, very bizarro. We're, yeah. Where it's like, Oh, come in here, but do all this stuff. And also like, now I'm just going to like tell you what I want you to do. I know. I feel like every, I feel like anyone who's been on like New York housing Craigslist has seen ads for these types of weird arrangements where it's like, Free housing, oh. and then you click the link, and it's like looking for hot woman to clean house and live with me, and you're like, uh, no, you're like, no, thank you. I'll pay, thank you. Like- and also, rent is still like twenty five hundred for that too, so it's like, what are you gonna do? <laughs> uh, but I mean, even though we might have, we might be saying that we're we were like, what the fuck is this move? Joy's mom was very supportive of it. Gwen was like, oh, this is perfect. You're moving with the pastor. What's I mean, it seems that? perfect. It seems for someone who is so involved in the church. And uh, in August 1997, Sean took Joy as his second wife when she was 19. Yikes. And also, Big if you're thinking, like, this, they, he was not in a church where, like, sister wives was a very common or accepted thing. That was not uh, the way of it because they married in secret since, A, it would be illegal, and B, very frowned upon for a pastor to marry twice, and one of them being the 19-year-old that he was... Like pasturing, pasturing. Pa- I, that sounded like the word. <laughs> oh, like it's not the verb involved. No, I know. Not the no, word. Not, not yeah, quite. I know, and I know what you guys are thinking because I was thinking it too. And he's not a member of like any Mormon sect. Never was. I tried to figure out what church it was. Um, all I found were these like producer notes from Dateline, which I feel like they probably didn't mean to put on the internet, but that's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. He would, he belonged to like some kind of non-denominational Christian church. Um, that was kind of all the information that I was able to get, but it was not Mormonism. So the L- LDS has won this round. <laughs> they are, they are, they, they have not entered the chat. They yeah. are, they are, they are not here. Um, the wives lived in separate bedrooms. So Joy and his first wife, Sheila and Sean would rotate. Okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> Sheila said that she was fine with it because she believed the man was the ultimate boss of the house or whatever. Yeah, I feel like that was just like their Christian their belief system, you know, belief like system, she yeah. just kind of went along with what he wanted. And he's a pa- he was a pastor, so I'm sure he everything that he would preach right. at church, he was like kind of like taking that home with him. Right. Like literally took Joy home with him. Here's where it gets extra messy, though. In September of 97... Sean's friend Leaf saw a weird email exchange between Sean and a man telling him, and the email exchange was Sean saying that he was grateful that this guy performed the ceremony to marry him and Joy. This email accidentally was sent to Sean's friend because he like, I I, I was trying to, he copied and pasted the exchange at the end of his email thread to his friend by mistake. So literally it was like, I mean, haven't we all done that? No. Oh, I've done that. Like, like not not that, but I have sent a text to the wrong person about oh, you know yeah. what I mean. So or you just forward 20, the email yeah. exchange to the wrong person, or the worst thing he added an extra attachment. I usually always forget to add attachment, 
And or I have that. to send the follow up like, LOL, need more coffee. And it's so embarrassing. But I feel like that was like my college hack when I wasn't done with something. I would like pretend oh. like I forgot to send it as an attachment. But I would I'm send so it as smart. A wrong... The teachers were like, this is not it. I would send instead of as a doc, I would send it as like something they couldn't download. And they would be like, this, you sent it as the wrong thing. And I was like, oh my God, what? Five hours later, like, I, what? So that's my hack for anybody who needs to send something. There you go. They, I like that. They want to be a bad student. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gwen was not, Joy's mom was not down with this marriage at first, which is not surprising. But yeah. she eventually came around. I don't, I guess she just like, you I know I think what? this guy could like sell shit. Like, I think he was He's like, pretty, yeah. I mean, a bit of a, a bullshit artist. Like, he, well, you know, what, he can, he can sell you a sermon and like eternal salvation and he can sell you on polygamy. A BOGO deal. Yeah. You got a, you got a term of validation in me. Yeah. Really, that is <laughs> My God. He, he was a preacher at Payless, which I mean, if they <sighs> ever need someone to hold mass there, I will happily do that. Um, <laughs> but his friend was not as down with this. So leave the guy who he sent the email to was like, you need to stop this immediately or tell the ministry. Sean refused to do either uh, and was kicked out of the church. And then with him, Joy also was kicked out. Uh, and kind of just uh, the years start going uh in 2000 at age 22 at this point joy and sean welcome their first Wait, i'm child. sorry did you say the years start going i'm like the years start coming and they don't stop coming I you know, know how i was goes. almost gonna say that i'm on dayquil i know i was gonna do that but i was like should i sing smash mouth before this i don't know <laughs> maybe not it's okay maybe not. i did it for you you did it for me you did it for stone the baby that they had there we go and but um very bizarre timing or just unfortunate timing rather they welcomed their first child, Stone, and the next day, Joy's mother passed away. And nine months later, Joy and Sean went to one of her high school friend's wedding, and Joy revealed she was unhappy and that Sean was controlling, and Joy wanted more freedom but didn't want to hurt him. And also at this point, Sarah, you uh, yes. found out some more info about him too, right? Yeah, so here's an interesting thing too. According to these Dateline producer notes, Again, LOL. Sean took another wife in 2000 uh, briefly. He, I guess, had become friends with this Christian polygamist and felt pressured from him to take another wife. And he met this woman named Sharon online. He drove, and they never met up in person. He drove across the country to pick her up, which is like, damn, just fly her out. But whatever. He drove across the country to pick her up. And then on the way back home, he kind of realized that it was a mistake. Um, Sharon had a lot of mental health problems and she just like didn't mesh well into the family and Sharon and Joy didn't get along. So she ended up living with the family for less than a year. And then he um, actually after eight months, he asked her to leave. So um, that's something that actually wasn't in the killer relationships episode, but is very interesting. Just to give you guys more clarity on him. Yeah. already tell this is really not a happy marriage joy kind of kind of wanted out and you know i mean this is like a guy who's kind of groomed her since teenage since she was a teenager Mm -hmm. so it's kind of no wonder that she's waking up and realizing like hey this isn't um, a healthy good arrangement um but then on september 19th 2003 joy disappeared after having dinner with sean at hotel del coronado in san diego and here's what's like the I mean, all of this is so wild, but here's what's really wild because John like immediately has a story. He tells friends and family that Joy left him and their two sons and ran off with an old boyfriend, said that she'd gone to Europe backpacking and he was completely torn up over it. But Joy's friends didn't buy it. And especially they didn't believe that she would leave her kids. 
Because, like, she left it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And on October 5th, which is still, what, three weeks, two, uh, three weeks after she goes missing. But after that, um, they reported her missing. But I think it was kind of the thing of, um, they had, like, gone to this wedding with Joy, and she was kind of talking to them about, like, how she wasn't happy in the marriage, and then they Mm -hmm. had kind of made plans to do something soon. And they weren't in, like, super regular contact at this point. So, um, you know, they kind of waited a bit. They still hadn't heard from her. And then they finally decided to call the police. And that's October 5th. Um, What's really weird, though, is, like, none of the friends tell police that Joy was in a polygamous polygamous marriage, which is, like, burying the lead, I'm going to say. Sort of a major detail also and could give a lot of uh, background in, like, motive etc and just kind of the situation she was in yeah right and I think at first they were worried that she was going to get in trouble and then it kind of turned to a point where it was like okay we're past we're past getting in trouble like we need to find if she's alive and if she's okay exactly um and also a few of her friends even got emails purporting to be from joy talking Mm -hmm. about how she ran off saying things like I know you know about Jason that's the old boyfriend we're going to Europe very soon but again, like her friends were just like, there is no way that she would do that and leave her children emails or not. And also just an email. Hey, I'm just going to Europe. Bye. Like, no. Yeah. Very, like, no. If I ever send an email like that, like you need to ask questions. I'm never just going to go to <laughs> Europe on a whim. I'm not rich. No. <laughs> Literally that. So detectives reach out to this ex. They get a hold of him. He was living in Massachusetts and said he hadn't spoken to Joy very much. You know, they maybe like exchanged a Hey, how are you here or there? But they had no plans to meet up, and he hadn't seen her in years. No, yeah, which, so he was just kind of like, why the fuck are you here? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. it makes sense. He's living across the country. Yeah. And authorities found that Joy's last phone call was made to Sean at 9.34 p.m. on September 19th, which was, uh, yes, like we said, a full 16 days before her friends reported her, reported her missing. And weirdly... For reasons nobody can figure out, G, um, Sean didn't mention this call when he first spoke with detectives. Mm, interesting. Now then, yeah. And then later on, he tells them, oh, right, we had a big fight. She left the house and she later called and um, asked to talk about it. And he said they talked it out. They went to bed. The next, And all of a sudden, the next morning, he remembered he saw Joy leaving with two suitcases, getting into a car and driving off. And like we said, this is not the first time he's spoken to police and never mentioned any of this before. No, he had like a KT Tunstall suddenly I see moment <laughs> about all this. And we're like, no, where was right. all this? And we're meant to believe like, that. Like your detail point by point of what she did the night that she right. disappeared. Yeah. Exactly. And, and at this point, detectives kind of find out about the other wife. They interview Sheila. Sheila said that she knew Sean and Joy were having problems. So she believed him when uh, he said that she had left. And I also feel like they're was probably that element of like her kind of believing that the husband is the authority figure in the marriage kind of thing. Yeah. And then they also found out something interesting that Sean basically directed Sheila to take the kids out of the house uh, the weekend that Joy disappeared. And once detectives start digging into Sheila, Sean is immediately kind of like, oh shit, and goes into damage control mode. And now he goes into the police station like unprompted and changes his story. So it's at this point. Yeah, interesting. It's at this point that he's saying that there was an accident and Joy was killed. And the detective who interviewed him is like, 
So she was murdered and Sean keeps saying, no, she was killed. And that distinction is important because um, murder implies premeditation and killing does not necessarily. I know that was a, I, that detective had really good like breakdowns of like interpretations of like that. So he was yes. really interesting in, the, in the episode. So now that Sean has admitted Joy has been killed, he has been arrested. Sean was very, very vague about how the death happened and said it was accidental. So then detectives called in Sheila to interview and she said she was with the kids at Santa Barbara and got a call from Sean saying, Joy is moving on. When you get back, she won't be here. There was a minor accident. Sketch. Ominous. Yeah, very fucking sketchy. Joy, I mean... I was like, how do you see that email and not think something happened? Like, Yeah, you know, like, gosh. So Sean said that when Joy left, she got injured and there was blood and asked Sheila to clean up the mess. Sheila did not even ask what happened. She just agreed to clean it up. So now this girl, this first wife, is just involved in the mur- in the in the killing, sorry, that he's calling it right. right now. Right, but she probably didn't know. No, no, yeah. So detectives felt confident Sheila was not involved in Joy's death. She was simply just... She was on. She was away with the kids. They searched the home and found droplets of blood in the halls of the living room, the bedroom, like someone was bleeding and running away. So they saw all of that. And the blood spatter seemed to end in the bathroom where there were big pools of blood. They also found Sean's computer and, get ready for this, looked at the emails sent to Joy's friends. They all came from Sean's computer. So but all of the those emails. emails that- I feel like that's the theme of this episode. This guy can't email. That That's one of the themes. The emails keep doing him in. They don't teach you that at preacher school, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so they end up getting a warrant for Sean's credit card statement. And, of course, now everything starts to fall into place. They find that he purchased a hacksaw, shovel, an ice pick, a sledgehammer, and a tarp from a hardware store before Joy's disappearance. That is truly the craziest so shit. He also rented a car and drove it 800 miles when Joy went missing. So what they think is how this went down is they believe Sean disposed of Joy's body about 400 miles from San Diego. Right. That's 400 there, 400 back, 800 miles. You guys got it. You got the math. So then um, in January 2004, two hikers in Maricopa County, Arizona, find something very creepy. It's... They kind of describe it as like a grave. It, to me, it kind of looks like a little makeshift shrine made out of rocks. And it smells of decomposition. They're like, this smells horrible. So a ranger comes out and starts taking apart the shrine and finds an arm and hair. And this this ends up being Joy's body. Um, the body couldn't initially be identified through fingerprints because there weren't any fingers or dental records because there weren't any teeth. But they were able to extract DNA through bone marrow and they got a hit that way, and they found out that it was Joy. So Sean goes to trial in July 2006, and he tried to make it seem like Joy came after him with the knife. They struggled for it. He stabbed her accidentally in self-defense, kind of, and then panicked and stabbed her again. Just a pause to roll your eyes, basically. Um, yeah. And he said that he covered up the killing because he knew authorities wouldn't believe him that it was an accident. No shit. Yeah, gee, I wonder why. Um, the guy who's hiding his three marriages and, uh, yeah. Right, right. And the prosecution said um, Sean knew that Joy was going to leave him, but he somehow convinced her to have dinner. 
And then they go back to the house. He comes after her with the knife and he chased her throughout the house. And like, you know, the, the forensics kind of back this up. Um, and they believe that she was dismembered in the bathtub because like we said, he cut off her fingers with a meat cleaver and used a saw to cut out her teeth. So this was like, I'm just like, this was clearly premeditated. This oh, was yeah. no and accident. Faith in, and Faith, in our interview, you'll she kind of uh, talks more about that uh, moment as well. Right, exactly. And and then um, Sean put Joy's body in a plastic container and then traveled from San Diego to uh, to Arizona to dispo- and kind of like disposed of body parts periodically was yeah. what they said on the show. So again, I'm like, this is no crime of passion this is no accident like you you planned it out and you tried it but you got caught Mm -hmm. and also the da said that sean planned to kill joy at least a year before her death and had even talked to a friend about a book called how to plan the perfect murder oh god not written by either of us shocking no 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 but i just this is crazy because they were that also if that's a real book the book once you open it it should just be like uh, like uh, you're no you're just uh, like it just wraps around you and you're just like right confined. and it immediately like, calls the police um yeah we're like that sounds like what oj that book that oj wrote if i did it yeah yeah literally. if i did it yes uh so no nobody bought sean's story i mean obviously uh, after just three hours of deliberation the jury found him guilty and he of uh, first degree murder and then he was sentenced to 26 years in prison well, all right. I mean, he's out soon then, too. Yeah, I hope he doesn't get out of prison soon because fuck that guy. I hope not either. Truly. Like, such... And, like, just trying to, like, hide everything and took advantage of so many people. And it was yeah. just so... Oh, God. I, I just will never understand. We should have asked Faith this, but I don't think she knows because it's just, like, why do people resort to murder? Why don't they just get a divorce? Well, and, I mean, and that's what I, her entire series is... Asks those questions where it's, like, you have this relationship where... People break up all the time. People get divorced all the time. Why do they not see it as the way out? And right. That's Yeah. So we we talked to her a lot about that, a lot about a lot of things. And I think you guys will really enjoy our conversation with her. Yeah. We have the host of, like, my new favorite show in Oxford. Like, oh, I am, great. like... I mean, I was watching it. And I was just like, oh, my God, I would love to talk to her. And then magically, Faith Jenkins appears on this recording, this Zoom magic. And we have Faith Jenkins here. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Danny. How are you guys? Doing well. Doing well. Thank you for having Great. me. Yeah, oh of God, course. So Thanks fun. for coming on. I, I watched. Well, Danny watched a few episodes of Killer Relationship. I watched one twice. So I think we're kind of in the same place because <laughs> I, I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, wait. I tried to go research the case myself. I watched the episode about Joy Risker. Mm. And then I couldn't find anything, really. Like, all of Oxygen had all the info. And I was like, let me just rewatch this again. I mean, how do you find the cases that seem to be, like, not as publicized as they should be? Well, our goal is to find cases that haven't been covered a lot and share those stories and tell those stories. So, um so when you say that, I when I, I looked up Joy Risker's case too when we were researching, and I was really surprised that there wasn't a ton of press about her case. Um, she was a she was a, I think nineteen when she first met mm-hmm. the man that she would go on to marry, and he was the youth pastor at her church. 
So just the dynamic of that relationship, the power dynamic in those roles as someone who was attending the church, looked up to him. She was someone he respected and admired. There was also something else really interesting about him. He was married. (laughs) That's a twist. And um, she also enters into a marital relationship with him. And the story really unfolds from there. They live together. Do you watch Sister? Have you ever watched Sister Wives on, on TLC? I have, yes. <laughs> yes. You have an idea of um, what it's like. They live in the same household. These two wives, their children, and and the husband. And uh, things go from bad to worse for her. So that case was really intriguing. But our goal, Sarah, as you mentioned, is to find cases that have not been covered a ton on Discovery ID or uh, A&E. And it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder because uh, so many people are delving into these true crime stories. It's such a popular genre now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was our goal. I love that. And I feel like, because it's also what you were saying with this case in particular, what struck, one, so many things were so hard with it, but that like Joy's mom was so excited that she felt Joy was getting on this new path and was going to be so secure. And because she had someone like her youth pastor who was like a leader to guide her. And when examining a lot of killer relationships, do you usually see that they start off with power dynamics like that? Or do they start to form? Is that usually like a main player with a lot of them? For several of them, I think that that's been the case. There's Mm -hmm. been this element of ego and control early on that you see in the relationships and for some of the, because most of the victims in these cases are women in this episode, for some of them, their families really didn't know um, until much later when they were in the relationship and people started letting their guards down and they wouldn't hear from them for a while. Uh, they were um, becoming more and more isolated in many of the cases. And so a lot of the power dynamics changed over time and people would, family members started to become concerned and worried. It's I, it's it's always so hard where like the worry I feel almost starts where people, because <clears throat> you never know what, and I feel this is what's so fascinating uh, and heartbreaking about this uh, serious killer relationship is that, no one always knows what exactly happens in someone else's home. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Where you can kind of like connect dots. You're like, oh, they seem like the happy couple and everything like that down the street and everything. So I also am wondering too, what made you so interested in these like love gone wrong uh, t- like type of uh, situations and crimes? Because I mean, there's like you said, mm-hmm. there's so many different avenues of true crime, but you're kind of focusing on these killer relationships. Well, I think that relationships, that that's something we can all relate to. Because we've we've all had them, we've all experienced them. Most of us have experienced breakups. Most of us have experienced when relationships have gone wrong. When we maybe even dating someone and we didn't want the relationship to end and someone else left us and broke up with us. So what I found to be fascinating and I pulled from, I was a prosecutor in New York. We were just talking about how I spent most of my legal career in New York. I was a prosecutor in New York and then I started doing all these family court cases And the show really combined two of my passions. Um, But on on the relationship side of it, what I found to be so fascinating with so many of these Uh, There there was one uh, case where the couple only dated for nine months. And then you have some where they were together and married for a decade. But at the end of the day, 
The question is, what makes someone make the decision where a breakup is not enough, getting a divorce is not enough, that they have decided they're okay with going on with their life, but somebody else's life has to end. And it's this question of why, what makes these seemingly normal people, they don't have these huge, violent backgrounds, some of them have never even had even a parking ticket, what makes them make that decision and take somebody else's life? Have you come up with any theories as to what makes someone kind of turn like that? There are a couple of things, and there are a couple of themes that you'll see um, from the show this season. One, a lot of people have secrets, Mm. and they're very concerned about their secrets being exposed the first couple of shows, we had a, a couple who, by all accounts, they were pillars in the community, very involved in their church. Well, the husband had a huge porn addiction hmm. that he was hiding from the community, the members of the church, and even his wife. She found out about it and threatened to leave him and expose him. Um, and... He killed her. Oh my gosh. So you have, he was so concerned and so consumed with people finding out that he had this deep, dark secret. So you have that um, aspect of it. And the other is, I was just previewing the case that we're airing this week where you have a young couple, they've only been dating nine months. When there, a breakup happens and this young woman is murdered and it's like nine months how, wh- how what, what do you care about so much in nine months? When you're t- in your twenties, you have the rest of your life ahead of you. You're probably going to go through several breakups. So you sh- you get, you should get used to it. But this guy, he couldn't handle it. And there's something about this I- emotional immaturity. And then um, this level of what's the word when people become obsessed Obsessed with something that they cannot have and they don't want anyone else to have it either. I mean, you Mm -hmm. guys talk about these cases all the all the time, too. What have you seen emerge as some of the recurring themes? I like that. We're we're being interviewed. I know. Look at this. Faith knows. I know. I definitely feel there is that thing where people kind of have so many times I feel like it's people have this idea of what their life is supposed to be. And they check all those boxes where they get the partner, they have the kids, they have the house with the lawn and the, and everything like that. And then they kind of realize, oh, this is, it's either not what I want and what's my escape route, or it's like, oh, it's now crumbling down and they can't handle their, um, a perceived failure. Mm-hmm. And instead of doing that, they're only, they think that their only option is to just quite literally in some cases, burn it all down. Yeah. And you're just like, mm-hmm. how, and it's, 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 it's an, it's an insane jump. Mm-hmm. Yep, Exactly. And that's what's made so many of these cases um, really interesting for viewers, just in getting the feedback that we have, that um, people are willing to go to those great lengths. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also just this, this level of trying to understand this, this world that we live in where it's just good versus evil. Mm-hmm. And you see it all in one episode. 
because you start mm-hmm. out with this love story and these people who claim to love each other so much and how they met and and you know you watch their story unfold a lot of these cases they have children together so you have an even deeper bond and connection so how do you go from something so good to something so bad and we we tell that story over the course of an hour I know. It's, I feel it's also so tricky, too, because there's so many times and everybody I feel like has been in a situation when you're dating someone. And like, also, it's just a thing where you're like, I'm just ready for that relationship. I'm looking for love. I want to make it work. Mm-hmm. And there's some things where you're like, oh, that's a red flag, but maybe I can ignore it. And then you kind of get in your own head being like, oh, am I being like too standoffish, right offish? I want to give them a chance to everything like that. And then it's like, I feel that's also such a tricky thing when people are like, How did no one notice? Because I feel so many times people have a thing where it's like, you never notice that this person who like did all of this, like there was no signs. But sometimes people don't see the signs as they are. Or sometimes people just ignore signs in general because you're just like, oh, well, what? I just am trying to make Mm -hmm. this work or I'm trying not to be like a quitter in this. And I love that you on your Instagram, you 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 talk a lot about like red flags too Mm -hmm. and everything. Not to always this intense of a degree, but just in general, because it's hard to always be you forget when you're dating that you're like, oh, you need to be aware of like this person in so many ways. Yes, absolutely. We had a, a case this season. This has been our highest rated show. This episode that oh. uh, I'm about to tell you now was our high, has been our highest rated show so far because it happened during COVID. And for me, it was the first that case one. I'd heard of where the pandemic was used as a cover up for murder. And, you know, you talk about those red flags because this this so this this husband, um, when the pandemic happened and this was back in March of 2020, I can't believe it's been two years. Uh, (laughs) I know. It's like two years later, this was not the conversation I thought I'd be having about it. But March of 2020, he the pandemic happens and people are isolated and quarantined and he used it as an opportunity it took advantage of the opportunity because people were trying to reach out to his wife, trying to find her. And she said, Oh, I'm in the hospital with COVID. So I can't, you know, he's texting on her phone. I can't talk. I can't communicate. I'm about to be put on a ventilator. So you're not going to hear from me for a while. Oh my gosh. Prior to that, there had been all these red flags that she started observing and she started backing away from the marriage and the relationship his temper, he was a huge Kobe Bryant fan. So remember, Kobe Bryant had gotten killed a couple of months before our world shut down. Yeah. And then the pandemic happened. Those two things sort of set this guy over the edge. And she was leaving him. And he um, he killed her. And for weeks, no one could really figure out what had happened to her because it was normal for people not to see each other at That's that point so and not to talk. So uh, he was on the he was on the move. They couldn't really arrest him because they didn't have sufficient proof. They didn't have a body for her. And it was this was really sad in the case. She had just set up um Siri. Well, what's the machine that people Siri Oh, Alexa? Had. Her Alexa thing? Yes, or, Alexa. Yeah. She had just set that up. And she was calling out to Alexa and we have the videotape, you know, Alexa called 911 and she finished, she didn't set it up correctly. So she had no help while he was, you know, had a cost to her in the garage. 
But that was a case that if it hadn't been for COVID, people would have realized much faster that she just wasn't around. And I remember there was part of that, too, where I think because when I that was the one I watched, another one I watched where people were like not even because back then, too, people didn't realize of course, like the severity of being on COVID with a ventilator, we're like, oh, she couldn't be texting if really, if that, if she was going on her vent, if going on a ventilator, everything like that. Right. People are just like, oh, and that's why she'll be slow to respond and everything. That is insane. Yeah. So he was texting from her phone, acting like he was her. Oh. Um, so that one was, like I said, that's the first case that I've heard of, that I'd heard of where the pandemic and COVID was being used as a, as a cover up. And I, I mean, I feel like even without COVID, you see that a lot of times if people have become, if their partner has kind of isolated them from their family and friends, and it's become normal not to check in every so often. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the, that's sort of the uh, preliminary stages of separating them from the people who love them the most. And it's, again, that element of control. Uh, we just had a case that aired last week that was just unreal. The um, They were actually planning their wedding. The couple, they were actually planning their wedding and they didn't hear from, the family members did not hear from their, um, their loved one, the wife in this case, for a couple of weeks. And they were like, oh, well, you know, they just got married. Maybe they're still on their honeymoon and, they really didn't know exactly what was happening. And then one of the brother's birthdays came and she didn't call for his birthday. Mm-hmm. And they knew then that, that something was wrong. What amazes me about so many of the killers in these episodes, the ability they have to go on and live seemingly normal lives after they've killed someone, take phone calls, act concerned. I don't know what happened. We broke up and she left. I haven't heard from her. You haven't heard from her. I haven't heard from her either. The way they they are able to go back to work and interact with the public in general as if nothing has happened has been still, it shocks me. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I can't even like you know, push through a minor inconvenience sometimes without like telling everyone or just having it just constantly on your mind. I mean, I don't know how people can, especially someone so close to you. Mm-hmm. That's what's so, yeah. And, I, and I'm curious too, sort of, because I mean, uh, you have been like a judge on TV mm-hmm. for so long and before that you were a prosecutor. How does it feel now being in like a different seat on TV where you're sort of looking at these cases where the justice has already been served or the justice has kind of gone cold a lot in some other uh, instances. How does, do you uh, sort of enjoy looking at the law in a different angle through this? or And also has it kind of shifted how you like look at uh, situations like this? Um, well, that's a good question because we actually chose cases that were resolved completely mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of someone being brought to justice. Because you know, a lot of these cases, unfortunately, a lot of family members and people write to me since we've started airing the show oh about their family members and being murdered and the case is still unsolved and um, and they want help. They want to shine a spotlight on them. But for this show, I really wanted people to see another side. I wanted to see 
I wanted people to see a side where these families got some level of closure. I hesitate because there's n- there's never any real closure when your loved one has been taken away. No. So there's never really any true justice because you can't get them back. Justice would be getting them back. But f- to the extent that someone has been held accountable and they know what happened, that gives these families a lot of peace. And so from that aspect of it, we chose cases that were closed in terms of someone had either pled guilty or they'd gone to trial and they'd been convicted. And that was the type of stories, that that was the type of story I wanted to share throughout the season. And then your second question was just about comparing that to the prosecutor's office. Yeah, yeah. So how kind of because like obviously when like being so in it because you kind of know all like so much more more than like I feel like um, other hosts on other shows like you know the nitty gritty of like going to trial and everything like that. But has this has like being in the hosting side of it like um, has it made you look at anything in the past any differently or kind of been like oh I know what they're thinking because I've been type of thing. Well, I think it's helped having the uh, experience that I have helps tell the stories. Because I know what the challenges are going to be when you're when you've arrested someone, but you don't have a body yet. Um, I know what the challenges are when I I remember when I started prosecuting cases in New York. CSI was like the number one show on TV and you would go (laughs) into those juries and they you you better have some kind of, uh, you know, evidence. That's forensics, something (laughs) to go along with um, with these cases and. Because over the years, the forensics analysis and the ability to collect forensics um, and the technology developed around collecting forensics is so good now, you're able to get a lot of evidence, even when the uh, Joy Risker case we were talking about earlier, where he cut off her fingertips and he pulled her Mm -hmm. teeth. So he had watched those shows too. And he thought that by doing those things, the police wouldn't be able to identify her. Well, it it did take them eight months to identify her, but they were able to use DNA to do it. So there's always something else that that technology is catching up with the criminals. They're keeping up with technology and it's this cycle. So I found it really interesting just to go through and be able to track how technology has moved over the years. That also, I because I always, I think so much, because just like what you were saying, how he probably, uh, Sean, watched this and knew how to kind of uh, uh, make the highest chance possible no evidence. But that's so interesting, too, that obviously from a prosecutor's standpoint that, you know, the juror, juries, for the most part, watch that, too, where they need the evidence that they kind of see on TV. And it's so bizarre, but also in a way impressive how media is catching up, or like it being such a part in legal cases, even when it's not like a high profile case. Yes. Well, these days for a jury trial, if you don't have, if you just have, for example, eyewitness testimony and you don't have DNA or some type of forensics, you have to explain to them why you don't have it because they expect Mm. to see something like that now in homicide cases because of shows like CSI on TV. Yeah. Like, is that, how realistic is that expectation? Like from your experience, what percentage of cases do have like some kind of DNA physical evidence? Is it is it rarer than we think? Or is it pretty common? Well, 
It depends. Most of them. So, you know, first 48, when you watch first 48 and they talk about those 48 hours to try to solve a homicide. Well, that's because the more time every day that passes, you're probably losing evidence Hmm. as more time goes on. And what happens is um, because over time things, you know, you the evidence can diminish. But because of technology, you can go in now and even when a crime scene has been cleaned six months later and detect blood splatter that was there and try to get even trace amounts. So it's really important when you have um, an, a, a evidence of a, of a homicide and there's been blood, there's, a, then there's an actual crime scene. You know, Shootings are a little bit more difficult, you know, stabbings. There's, there's a lot of forensics that they can use there. Um, but when you know that you have a crime scene, you have to take the steps to do everything possible to connect this killer with that scene. Because if you don't, the, Defense will use that as a tool to say, to shore up their case and say, you haven't proven it adequately because there's all of this. There was there was this huge crime scene. But what do you have to connect this person to that scene? I want to switch gears a little bit. Danny mentioned you talk about red flags on your Instagram. What do you think are some of the common ones that people overlook when they get into a new relationship? I find that things that people think are just little lies Mm -hmm. in the beginning can come back to haunt you in the end. If someone tells you that they are a vegan, but you see them (laughs) on Snapchat eating wings, (laughs) why are they lying about that? (laughs) Why? (laughs) <laughs> what is it about them that they feel they can't be themselves? That's so true. And they uh, want to impress you. <laughs> so those little lies in the beginning. It's so smart the way you flip that because I feel so many times people, when they're just starting a relationship, they're like, oh, I'm crazy. That's just a little thing. But then you're like, wait, why is it even a thing? Because they made it. A th- yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, that's a re- that's a huge red flag because if you're lie if you can if you can lie with ease about th- those little things, yeah. yes. How are you going to handle the big things? Mm-hmm. Um, another one is, and I've seen this just dealing with a lot of the relationships that uh, you know. I wrote a book. I just wrote a book uh, called "Sis Don't Settle." It just came out Good a few that. months ago. Congrats! So these are some of the things I talk about in my book. Another big one. Just the uh, if someone has a history, if you if you want to be in a committed monogamous relationship and someone has a history of infidelity, they've cheated in every relationship in the past. But for you, for you, you are special. And they tell you it's going to be different <laughs> this time around. Uh, <laughs> I feel they always say that, don't they? <laughs> yeah, right. And I feel like because there's like this like quote that people say a lot where it's like, you uh, you lose them how you get them. And I feel like that is such a thing when like people like will cheat on someone and then you're like, oh, but they cheated on their like spouse with me because they just love me. And it's a different thing. And you like sell yourself this <laughs> false narrative. And then you're like, oh, where? Why can't I get to their phone? Where are they? Why are why is their find my friend off? <laughs> I always say people lie. Patterns don't. 
Oh. Mm. When you look at somebody's patterns, you know when the when the FBI, when they create these profiles of people, you know what they do? They go back and they study their patterns. When they try to figure out what they're going to do next, what what type of person are we dealing with? They look at the things they've done repeatedly in their lives and they put together profiles. So if you really want to know something about someone and who they are, look at the patterns. I feel like you need to make a dating FBI. Like you need to have a matchmaking service where you do all this research (laughs) and patterns and you're like, here's the 20 pages on them. Are they worth it or not? (laughs) Because, you know, I love the people can change. I'm not saying people don't change. They can change, but people will not change for you. Oh my gosh. Where were, why weren't I zooming with you like two years ago? I feel like I needed to hear this. Oh my gosh. And I'm also wondering because, um, uh, with like, uh, tying it in with killer relationships with there's a, there's so many out there, unfortunately, was there any that like you were debating on including in this season that you ended up holding off is, or is there any story that you've kind of, found out since after researching this, you're like, oh, I really want to tell this story. There's a story that I really want to tell. And it's a little different from what we have on the show this season, because um, you may have heard about this. Every Everyone this season is in a, a, a love, it started off as a love relationship. But I, I do want to expand going forward if we're blessed with additional seasons of the I show. I hope so. It's so good. It's so yeah, good. Um, I love it. Yes, yes. There's there's a story. Um, a couple of years ago, a student at uh, Clark Atlanta University, I, I want to say her name was Jordan. I think their names are Jordan and Alexis. The case is ongoing now, but I think there'll be a trial or resolution this year. And uh, Alexis was murdered by Allegedly, let me just back up for a second because the case is still going on. Yes. <laughs> Jordan has been charged with the murder of her friend and roommate, hmm. Alexis. And um, I think that there has been an admission of guilt in terms of just telling the story of what happened. I have been following the case. I've been really interested in it because if you see the photos of them, they're at parties together, arms are, are around each other. Wow. Uh, they spent the most recent holidays together before um, this this happened. And the allegation so far is that Jordan's boyfriend was interested somehow in Alexis. Oh. And... Um, Alexis went to campus police to make a report that he had uh, kissed her and it was not consensual. And everything devolved after that. So then you have these two kids who are, are now being charged with suffocating her, strangling her and dumping her body and uh, going back to school and being a part of the search, posting on Instagram. Oh my God. Hey, wow. Find um, my roommate. Um, uh, this is a really difficult time. And oh um, it's a really heartbreaking story. Alexis comes from a family. She has a lot of siblings. Her, her dad is a pastor. And uh, it's stories like that, that when you talk about the relationship, 
devolving and because how many of us have had falling outs with friends in college and you know i think that the there's a more serious allegation with the boyfriend but still there are all of these other resolutions that you take in life besides taking someone's life allegedly so that's one of the stories that I've been following and that I would love to cover once there's a resolution. Because I feel, because that is, it's such a thing where it's, it's because even though they're in college, but they're still so young, where it's like a 20-something, where it's like you think everything is the end of the world then, you know what I mean, too? Where like they just jump from A to Z so fast. And then I also, it's interesting to your point too, because like a roommate relationship, it has a lot of intimacy levels that like, an actual relationship has, and I mean, you you uh, lived in New York for 10 years, you, I'm sure you have your share of roommate uh, sagas going on where it's just like, you never know, and especially at college, where like, you never really know someone until you live with them, and I feel that is just the across the across the board. And even when you live with them, you still don't even really know, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. There's another case that I'm really interested in covering, and it's out of Texas. Um, a woman connected she's she was married for several years she connected with her high school sweetheart and this is one of the craziest murder for hire stories she just played so the case is over now but she convinced her current lover to kill her husband by sending him fake emails pretending that she was her husband and saying to him what Yes, I'm I'm hitting her, I'm abusing her, and there's nothing you can do about it. Here are the pictures to prove it. So she pretended oh to be her husband, sending this guy all of these antagonist messages antagonizing messages and showing him photos of her allegedly being abused. It was all her wow. writing. Wow. Behind the scenes. Her husband had no idea this was going on. So her husband goes out to walk the dog one day. This guy pulls up with a gun and shoots him. Oh, oh my God. God. It just happened in Texas. Wow. Was he actually abusing her or was no. she just? No. Oh, my gosh. It was all a part of her story that she made up to try to get out of the. That was her way of getting out of the marriage. Wow. And again, she's on TV making these pleas. They raised $60,000, a GoFundMe. The, the, the neighborhood community rallied around her raised $60,000 as a part of a GoFundMe for her and her family. And uh, because, you know, she's this grieving widow. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's it's always the, it's someone you know. Mm-hmm. And- so in these cases, people aren't killed by random strangers for the most part. They're killed by people they know. That's what's terrifying. I feel like that's why the concept of killer relationships, it's a good concept because you're right. I mean, most of the time, whether it's a romantic relationship, a roommate, a friendship, whatever it may be, like that's kind of what happens in the majority of mm-hmm. cases. Yes. Yes, that is. Um, most people are, like I said, it, it's someone that they know that they have some type of relationship and uh, some type of connection with them. Well, I mean, going forward for killer relationships, what can you give us like a little sneak preview of what we can expect? Yes, we have uh, a case coming up on the show. Uh, it's a uh, double homicide. And unfortunately, one of the people who was killed was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
Um, he was not the target. The young woman was. And you, there's a theme that I think that has emerged throughout the season. And that is for a lot of these people, everyone has a secret. And it's about the lengths that they will go through to keep their secrets from being exposed. So you're going to see more of that. Uh, with the rest of the episodes that we have airing this season. And then, as you know, Oxygen re-airs them afterwards. So you'll have an opportunity to binge them if you want to. Um, But that's what you're going to see. You're going to see these themes emerge with these stories that start off with love so strong, so great. And we take you through this hour-long episode of how something that starts so good can end so bad. Well, everybody go watch. <laughs> yes, you need to watch. And it's I love that you said that you all intentionally found cases where there is a resolution of sorts, where the family at least gets answers. Because me and Sarah, there's a lot of times where like you'll watch uh, a series or a documentary and then it ends and you're just like, oh, now I'm so... Like, I, I, I just kind of just leave so confused. So I do love that you guys um, can tie it all up and there is some for some for some sort of closure and it is so well done i you guys have like such a good way of like getting experts and people that know the cases in and out so well and you host it so well so it really is a great show that i hope is on oxygen for like 15 years because i want more thank you. <laughs> it's so good thank you thank you so much i appreciate that it's been it's been a joy this is my first show that i'm also executive producing oh yeah so it's been uh it's been a, just a really fascinating experience to be not only in front of the camera, but behind it as well. And so uh, I've, I've enjoyed helping to find these cases and bringing them to life. And it, it makes me happy to hear that you find them to be so as sad as they are, that you find them to be so interesting to, to watch. And the stories are important to tell. They're so important to tell because I, I think it's so important, the whole theme of the show where it's because it makes people not, I'm not saying everybody listening, go, uh, go through every person you're dating's email and double check. But just, it has to be like to people just to be aware and to just kind of yeah. be more cautious and just to kind of keep, you know, just know your surroundings and know what's going on because you just, I you never know. Yeah. And you never know. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Oh my God, this is such a treat. Thank you for waking up at 8 a.m. for, or even before that because <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> LA yeah. is hard time, yeah. I'm an early riser, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll go out, take my dog out, enjoy enjoy the sunshine. I always tease my New York friends now. About that. Oh, <laughs> it is so cold. I know. I, I hope you we get some that. sun here. You you deserve that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was great talking to you guys. It was so good talking Thank with you. you. Well, and that is our double header episode. I mean, I'm glad you guys stuck with us through all of that. I mean, I'm sure you guys are obsessed with faith now, as we are, and. Obviously, we will be back next week with some more episodes, some more crimes uh, to unpack and talk about with you guys. If you guys have any suggestions, of course, let us know in Not Another True Crime group or DM at Not Another True Crime on Instagram. We always love getting uh, case topics from you all. Yeah, follow Danny on Instagram, Cashmere Danny with a K. And follow Sarah Lameem on Instagram as well. And we'll be back next time. Thanks, everybody. Not Another True Crime Podcast is produced by Jorge Morales-Pico and Sean Kilby. Our hosts are Sarah Levine and Danny Murphy. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Sarah Levine. Be sure to follow at NATC Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to natc at
betches.com. Betches.